With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Jerry, we are nearly Tokyo bound. We have episode 43 of The Wheelhouse. We are here inside the Peoria Sports Complex on a sunny, albeit very windy day for a Mariners backfield baseball. We've got a night game tonight against the Giants, and then it's on to a bird tomorrow. Jerry, are you packed? Are you ready? How are things looking? I'm mostly packed. I'm definitely ready. I, I will say this, though, that, and I, I may have mentioned this once before. This is the first time in my baseball life that I have ever identified that spring training is too short. Now, we, we are uh, we're getting ready to get on the plane tomorrow morning and head off to Tokyo. And, and I'm not quite sure that the way this weather has been so far in, in Arizona this spring, that we all feel great about where we are currently. But, you know, it's, it's exciting to go. We're, the A's are just a couple of miles down the road, so they're in the same situation we're in. And we're just hoping that once we get over there, the, the pitching really starts to click. This will be our final wheelhouse before, I guess, the second opening day when the Red Sox come to Seattle. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, whether that's on iTunes, on Stitcher, wherever it might be. And feel free to uh, give us a review as well. Now, Jerry... In all seriousness, and we've it's been fun kind of uh, taking shots at the weather here in Arizona, but when you consider a rainout yesterday, a game that was supposed to happen in uh, Glendale, and then on top of that, it was going to be Wade LeBlanc, I guess the night before, in a night game against Kansas City. He didn't start because rain was in the forecast and rain did come, although they were able to play the entire game. Now today on the backfield, it seemed like every starting pitcher and bullpen arm you had was in a on a parade getting on the mound. It was, and I guess we showed our own uh, deficiencies in, in predicting the weather by pulling Wade from his start the other night against the Royals where we played an entire game. And, uh, and you know, I called Dayton Moore with the Royals before we, we began. This is probably, I don't know, 5 o'clock uh, the, the night before last. And, and I left him a voicemail. Dayton, it's Jerry. Hey, we, you know, we've just wanted to get ahead of the game. We don't think we're going to be able to get more than two or three innings in here. How do you guys feel about playing a, a B game? Uh, and so we can get the, the pitching in tomorrow. And I never heard back from them. They, they, and they, they threw their normal starter. They played a full game. And, and we discombobulated all of our pitching to the point. And this is fantastic because this happened with a, a Major League Baseball team. We pulled Wade LeBlanc and expecting fully that we weren't going to play the, the entire game. And when it started to appear that, in fact, the weather was going to hold and we were going to be able to play, Scott Service turned around at some point during the game and he said to Andy McKay, hey, you need to get on the phone and get some minor leaguers over here in case we need them. So we are literally calling guys from restaurants across the street or from their hotel room, hey, get over here and get a uniform on. We might need you. And they're so... Don't don't fall to a minor leaguer if he came in during the tail end of that game and and coughed it up because he might have just been 
finishing up with his chicken wings on, on the way over to the ballpark. You guys are real pros. Yep, we do it the right way. <laughs> <laughs> That's. Is, have you ever heard of that happening before? It's never ha- never happened in a. I can say that it, that in my career, it's never happened in a spring training game because. More often than not, down here, you get weather that's almost ideal for what we're doing. So you don't have to battle this. And we have a number, we call them the Jicks, the just-in-case guys. We'll have three, four, five guys lined up to back up what is a full component of Major League pitching for that game. But when you pull the starter, and the starter just heads home, and the starter was supposed (laughs) to throw four or five innings, and then you wind up playing nine innings. We ran through all of our relievers because they started the game. And, and then we ran through our just-in-case guys. And, you know, by a hair, we were able to push it across the, the line. And, you know, but there were a couple of guys scrambling across the street to throw on uniforms. And hopefully that's a story they can tell their kids one day. Well, hopefully they all get closer to the big leagues than that right there one day as well. When you get prepared to get on a plane and go to Japan, and we'll be talking about the 30-man roster and kind of the intricacies of that, has this spring gotten to Scott a little bit in terms of how ready this team will be for those two exhibition games and two actual games against the A's, or do you feel like it's in a good spot? I I think from a planning perspective, from a preparation perspective, this might be the most prepared we've been in any of the springs that I've been a part of. There's Scott and the staff have really had a wonderful spring. They, these guys have worked their tails off dating back to early meetings in January and then where we've come through this spring to, to the point that I think they're forgetting to eat meals every now and then because they're double timing to make sure that, that they've got this lined up. And this coaching staff seems to have a real cohesiveness about it. Uh, we've gotten so much good work in this camp. As you know, we've made a lot of, uh, I guess, we've made more use of progressive tools and, and, and technologies than we ever have in the past. And, or I guess I shouldn't say ever, that we have in the past. And that has really kind of taken some of the onus off of the physical work and, and made it more of a, a mental, psychological exercise on some level. And, and now the physical work can happen in the morning and it doesn't matter if it rains because we've, we've came up with a game plan that can, that can be attacked from the perspective of the batting cages, which are covered, and, and bullpen mounds that, that are also covered. So I, I'd like to play games where there are other teams on the other side a little more frequently, but it's, it's gone great. Really. Okay, so it hasn't been ideal, but things are more than stable and fine and ready for takeoff for Tokyo. Very much so. Kind of along those lines, this is, a, I guess, kind of an age-old question, but it seems like there might be new answers now than there was even five years ago based in part of, along the lines of things you were just discussing. When you're looking at a Christopher Negron versus uh, Dylan Moore or Jose Lobaton, Lobaton versus David Freitas, I mean, in spring, right, one guy might be facing a major league starting pitcher. Another guy might be facing a double-A starting pitcher. One guy might be playing when it's 75 and sunny. The next day, the guy's playing when it's rainy and like 45 degrees with wind blowing in their face. What are some of the ways that you and Scott and the coaching staff go about making these decisions for who will make your camp when you have all those factors and then add into the mix, you know, spring training is just kind of spring training. And what can you make of spring training? They all are. And I, I've mentioned this before. We have, I have been guilty in my own scouting life of walking into spring training the first month and you're watching veteran players who are in the midst of their prime go out 
and they're a little slow out of the gate. They don't look great. Everything looks tardy. The swing looks a little bit long. They're not on time. There's and I, I I've been the one to throw up my hand and say I think this guy's done. And then lo and behold, it turns into I I, I did it with Rafael Palmero. I did it years ago with Jason Schmidt. This guy will never throw hard again. And eventually he didn't, but it wasn't that time. <laughs> <laughs> but you know we we tend to to overreact to what we see that day. So we have we go through a series of preparation meetings that start in December, that roll through January into February, and we have a pretty good idea of what we want our team to look like when we leave spring training on the day spring training starts. And you mentioned two, let's call it positional battles in our camp, the utility infielder and the, the backup catcher position really went down to the wire. The catcher position is still ongoing, and, and we're still, you know, not – I guess we're undecided as to whether we'll go with with Jose or with David. But as far as the utility infielder position goes, you know, Christopher Negron, we kept from last year. Great guy, super athlete, very versatile. We feel like fits us. He also provides us veteran depth. And, you know, with Dylan Moore, we thought where we were with this team and and what we want to accomplish growing this roster and and playing the long game looking toward 2020 and 21. Dylan's 26. He's a, he's a talented guy. He has a lot of versatility moving around the field. And there are two things that he does that maybe, I, I guess, separate him from Chris Negron in the early going in spring training. One is that he, he has a good deal of experience playing first base, which as a right-hand a right hand hitter uh, gives us something of a possibility with, with in-game change at first base. It also gave us, once Kyle Seeger went down with injury just a few days ago, it gave us a, a bat that has maybe a history of a little bit more impact. You know, Dylan hits the ball hard, and – one of the reasons we were drawn to him as a free agent and we offered him a major league contract, a 40-man job, was a, a lot of what our scouting reports and our data were telling us is that this guy is there's, – there's a future major league career for Dylan Moore just based on what he does. He's performed all but one year of his, of his minor league career. Uh, last year was a terrific performance year for him with near 1,000 OPS thereabouts. Uh, hits the ball roughly as hard as anybody we we saw on the free agent market can play all of the positions on the field not just middle positions but he plays he can play the outfield he plays first base the middle positions third and has pretty vast experience around the diamond and we thought this is a chance to just give him the first crack and let him run with it so he will be on our opening day roster when we tee it up in Tokyo exciting news for Dylan Moore no doubt about that you will be taking 30 players to Tokyo. We know that the roster expands to 28. Can you walk us through the process of 30 to 28 to 25? Yeah, you know, the way this works, because we're going to be over in Japan for a week, it's not quite as easy as, as calling a player up from Tacoma if, if an injury should happen. So we're with the 30 players, we're traveling with what we anticipate our 25-man roster being. We get the benefit of five extra players. And the idea is if someone is injured, that we have a replacement on hand, so we have to cover all the various positions. We also are able to designate 28 players who are eligible to play, and then we have to refine that to 25 
prior to the opening game. So you know, we have two exhibition games before we play the A's. We don't want to wear out the everyday players by playing them in, in nine-inning games back-to-back. That's just not where we are in the spring training, uh, I guess, progression. So we'll travel with the extra five guys. In this case, we're going to travel with a, a third catcher, which depending on who wins the backup job, you know, we'll carry three catchers, Omar Nervaez, David Freitas, and Jose Lobaton. Uh, they will travel with us. We will pick one of Freitas or Lobaton to be the backup, and the other will, will not be eligible to play. We will travel with an extra starting pitcher. In this case, it's going to be Tommy Malone. And Tommy will likely be uh, contributing during the the exhibition games, and then we'll make a determination as to whether we need him for the 28-man roster headed into the the regular games. We're going to carry an extra infielder and an extra outfielder, and that is part of the reason why Dylan Moore meant or made so much sense in our decision-making process, because it allowed us not to have to put Malik Smith on the injured list. We're going to leave Malix here in Arizona. By carrying Dylan Moore, he can cover all of the other positions on the infield and, and provide the, the buffer of a, a, a super utility player that's not just a second baseman shortstop. And that allows us not to have to put Malix on the injured list and therefore have access to him when he's ready to play, which we think will be the, the next opener at home versus Boston. And we're also going to travel with Braden Bishop. And the great chance that, that the great chance is that when we carve up a, a roster and we na- narrow it down to 28 and we line up for opening day with 25, that Braden Bishop will, will get the opportunity to make his major league debut. I don't know if he'll get in the games, but he's going to be eligible to do it. What does that mean when you can tell a guy like Braden or Scott can tell a guy like Braden? Because we know that was having a terrific season last year in Double A with Arkansas. Was hit on the wrist, a fractured wrist. It ended his season. It's a guy that there isn't a single person in America who, if you learned his story, you wouldn't root for him all day long. That must be the best part of the job, isn't it? It is. Mostly, we're just trying to you know butter him up because we like his brother in the draft. <laughs> his brother. It's funny you say his brother plays in Tempe at Arizona State, correct? He does, and he's having a terrific year. Uh, but I say that jokingly. You know, we are. Braden has had a terrific spring, and really the last two seasons for him. His his last two seasons in the minor leagues, the seventeen and eighteen seasons, have been phenomenal. He has really bought into the things that we were trying to do. He's changed his profile as a player. And, you know, he went from a low-impact bat, super defensive player, guy who had high-end run speed. He still has the defense and the run speed, but he has turned himself from from a lower-impact bat into a legitimate offensive player. And we feel like he's come into this camp and just won a job, for, for lack of a better way to put it. He's, he's been as good offensively as anybody in this camp. As you know, he's as good in the clubhouse and as a teammate. His work habits really stand out. And he's an example of, of, of what buying into a program and believing in the people around him can do. Uh, he deserves it. I, I don't know that, that, he's, that we're looking at a 162-game stay for him because at some point we are going to adjust and, and we'll, we'll have to go back to – to the the team we planned on, which will include Malik Smith. But Braden deserves the opportunity, and and rather than go with someone that we thought might be more experienced, we thought we would reward the guy who worked hardest and earned it most. 
Getting back to Malik's for a moment. First of all, for those who didn't read a press release that kind of came through over the course of the winter, it's no longer the disabled list. It's the injured list, which is why you've referred to it very correctly like that a couple of times. So that's some big league vernacular that we'll all get used to. It sounds like you already have. Not at all what I'm trying. Okay, well, you're selling it like you have. Could you not kind of postmark or postdate the injury for Malik since it's the start of the season? If he were to start on the injured list in Japan with the length of duration, he wouldn't be eligible to play versus Boston. How does that that timeline work? So the way it works is if we put him on the injured list prior to the start of the, the A series in Tokyo, those two games would count. But then after those two games, it would it would no longer – he would effectively be on pause until we got back. And then the third day would be opening day against Boston. So the third day of 10-day minimum. Correct. So we, we would be buying another week of missing Malik's that we just don't have to. But, you know, we, we've checked with the league. We do have the ability to leave him here and not IL him. Uh, but, nice IL. Yeah, nice you like that? Yeah. No, I'm trying. It rolled off the tongue, like didn't it? Um <laughs> We do have the ability to leave him here, not put him on the injured list. And that's one of the nuances of our, I guess, spring training schedule is that we can do that. And he's, he'd still be eligible to play on the home opener or at the home opener versus the Red Sox, provided he's ready. And we think he will be. So would that lead one to assume that he will hopefully, if things progress properly he'll be playing in some cactus league games while the mariners are in tokyo he will you know we only have three cactus league games uh, while we're down here and i suspect we'll see malik's in those we'll also see him in minor league games every day so you know he's he is he's working hard he's out here every day and has been since the start of camp so he will be playing either in one of those three uh cactus league games or our triple a game that day and try to maximize his number of at-bats, catch him up. I don't think he needs to get 75 plate appearances to be ready, but we would like to get him to the point where where we do get 40, 50 of them built up before we get to, to the Red Sox game back up in Seattle. One of the most popular guys in the Mariners clubhouse, I'd have to think, is the man that Scott Service has tabbed the opening day starter for the Mariners, Marco Gonzalez. He has done nothing but impress since coming over from the Cardinals organization. He is the opening day starter in 2019 for the Mariners. What does this mean for for Marco, for Scott, for yourself, the organization? I, I think it, it's advocating for all of them. Uh, Marco has been an advocate for our organization, our coaching staff, what we do, how we do it, his teammates, and, and vice versa. This was our chance to... To, to thank him for all that he's done and contributing here and to give him what he deserved. I, I thought he was from pole to pole last year about our most consistent starter. Uh, there were times when, when he had some struggle in August and with the exception of the, the upside of, that you would get in a given month with James Paxton, Marco was steady across the board and, and delivered as good a season as we could have hoped for. And this is his reward for doing that. Is, you know, and I can't even really use the word reward in, without it being me catching myself and saying, he earned it. And you know, it's, uh, it, this is his time. This is uh, what we believe uh, is it's messaging to the rest of our pitchers that, if, that effectively this could be you. Uh, is you know, Marco went out and pitched well in the in his spring training outings. Sons a, a rough outing the other day versus the Cubs, where pinpoint control, throwing all his pitches, his offseason 
program and preparations were awesome. And he came in here and he showed very early on in camp a, a real want to be a staff leader. The way he gets along, interacts, and communicates with his teammates is is really good and always has been. So he's mature enough to handle this. He's been our, our roughly our best pitcher since dating back to opening day last year. So why would we not give him this opportunity? That reminds me when you talk about his preparation. I was having a conversation with somebody on your staff, Joel Furman, who is a, very much a part of the pitching analytics side for you. Did you know that as we speak, Joel Furman is working two doors down and is currently the acting assistant director of analytics, which is not really a role. We've we <laughs> assistant uh, to but, the regional manager. Yeah, Jesse Smith left for a couple of days. Oh, come for, on, Jesse. To head back to, to Seattle for for some needed business, and and Joel became our Dwight Schrute. So he is. Uh, <laughs> I walked right. past, and the uh, yellow notepad paper that has been put up there is is perfect. Yeah, I think it has Joel's name, and it has acting director of <laughs> analytics. It's fantastic. <laughs> Well, Joel's an incredibly likable guy and uh, really knowledgeable. You could you could talk uh, track man with him uh, for twelve hours straight. You'd you miss all your meals in a day. He'd be so into it. Or Washington State Cougars something. Okay, anything. yeah. We'll, 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 I'll bring up Mike Leach next time. Joel told me something really interesting that, if I understand correctly, had not been done in spring training until this year, and that is. Joel, along with Scott and a number of other people, sitting down with every pitcher and basically bringing the data, bringing the human side of it, and talking to each pitcher about what it is that you are seeing in the numbers and the analytics and how you might think that that could help them going forward, whether that be with individual pitches or game plan or what have you. And I, the, just the first name that came to mind was, what, what was that conversation like with Marco? Well, with Marco, there weren't a lot of adjustments we wanted to make. We had these conversations last year with Marco. Uh, this year is the first time it was mainstream, and we did it with all of our pitchers. And, you know, Joel was a part of those meetings with, with Paul Davis, with Scott Service, and in some cases with a, a, another pitching specialist who might have developed a relationship with that player. And we walked them through the, da- the, the data, how to maximize their, I guess, to maximize the efficiency of their repertoire, how to sequence their pitches, how we might be able to to change some element of what they do and enhance their rates of success. We're doing the same things with our hitters and uh, went through those with Scott, with Tim Laker, with Dustin Lind, who who oversees our hitting development programs, and in some cases, Hugh Quattlebaum. And that group has been terrific. And what we're doing is just presenting players with, with kind of an interactive program for for how they might better use the tools that they have and how we can use the technologies to, to help us along the way. And Marco has been open to all kinds of the, the data input, the technologies, the, the, the human voice, and then, as he should, exercising his own feel, you know, how, how he feels about his pitches and, and what might work on a given day. He's, Marco is a, he's a smart he understands the game. He's been in it for a lifetime. His dad's a longtime pitching coach, and and he has a, a, a pitching IQ that is very high. His baseball IQ is very high, but his pitching IQ is extremely high. Joel was saying that he wished he could have had the meeting with Marco much longer than it actually went because it sounded like it was pretty short because Marco said, yeah, yeah, I get all that. Keep yeah, doing yeah, what you're yeah, doing. Yeah, for sure. Keep me posted. I like it. Go get it. I understand it. Yeah, funny story about Marco growing up in baseball with his father. 
who was really on the amateur side, I, from my understanding, was a really high-level amateur pitching coach, but then was also in professional baseball uh, internationally as well. Marco's mom got a call from the school when Marco was little, like a early grade school, and the teacher was concerned because Marco kept spitting in the classroom. <laughs> it seemed natural. Yeah. yeah. When he went to dad's work, everybody just spit on the floor. <laughs> so we thought, this is what you do. Why wouldn't we do this? <laughs> is Marco's dad still today? He's a, he's a coach in the Colorado Rockies system and has had a long career in baseball now, probably three decades long, and coaching pitchers, first pitching professionally, and then coaching pitchers. So, uh, you know, it. He learned the right way, and it's uh, it's it's proving well for him. I think now going into what should be the prime of his career at 27 years old, we feel like he's got the – he has the physical weapons, you know, multiple pitches that we see as playing average to plus on a major league scale. What we think is among the, the top handful of com, you know, pitch command uh, caches in, in the league. He's very good commanding the ball. And, and an ever, I guess, growing knowledge of the league around him that is only going to help because Marco makes his money by keeping hitters off balance and locating. And the, the players or the pitchers who do that tend to only get better as they, as they garner more experience against the high-level hitters. And, and I don't doubt for a moment that Marco will be one of them. Not to be lost in the shuffle, Yusei Kikuchi will be making his Major League debut in Japan. He'll be the first ever Japanese player to make his Major League debut in Japan. It is going to be a circus over there for him. What have you liked the most out of him this spring training? The number of photographers that are standing in back of him every time he throws, whether it's in a game or in the bullpen. The the click of shutters has become that you say Kikuchi. <laughs> uh, he has been terrific. The thing that stands out most to me with you say is his mindset. This guy is incredibly growth minded. He wants to get better. He's curious. Uh, I think he has been at times frustrated this spring. He's a perfectionist, and we, we've learned that very quickly, and he's tough on himself. But he has thrown very well all spring long, and my my suspicion is he doesn't think that way. Uh, there's always a, there's a bar that he is trying to measure himself against that is higher than, than most bars. And uh, he threw very well this morning. As, from a pitch perspective, He's been mostly 92, 95 with his fastball and sitting around 93, 94 most days. His curveball is exceptional, and it has been lights out all spring long, whether it's the ability to drop it in the strike zone, to, to kind of create that sharp break under the zone with two strikes. And what excites me most about where he is and where he's going is that we, and, and I think he would agree, his best out pitch coming into this camp is his slider, and he's not yet found the, the handle on it. And uh, that may have something to do with the dry desert air, the difference in the balls between you know the MPB and MLB that he still has to kind of get a grasp for. But if, if we get a, a, a well above average slider, which we think he has in, the, in his bag of tricks, to go with the curveball-fastball combo we're seeing – it has a chance to be wildly entertaining because it is he is so fun to watch pitch. I, I've had the opportunity to sit behind 
the the plate while he's pitching on three occasions now, including this afternoon. And you just can't pick the ball up. He he stays so linear with his arm and his and his, and his posture that the the ball just shows up and. When the ball just shows up just over the shoulder at 94 miles an hour, it, there aren't very many people alive that can trigger it that quickly. The exact quote that I heard, and I, you may have even said this, I just we were sitting in the dugout, and a guy that had faced him in live BP, I think Kelly Monroe, works in baseball information, was talking to this individual and said, yeah, what's it like facing him? Can you, can you pick up the ball? And the batter just said, it, it comes out of nowhere. Like It just comes out of nowhere. You can't pick it up at all. It reminds me a lot of, of back in the mid-90s when Hideo Nomo showed up for the first time. And, you know, it was so unique. There was such a, you know, like that kind of tornado twister type delivery. And the ball just shot out. And it was 95, 96 miles an hour. And you knew he had that wicked split. And if he got strike one on you, and, and here comes the, the split over and over, and you've roughly had no chance for, for his first two, three years in the big leagues. I feel like with Yusei's curveball slider combo, he's he has the capability of doing that. Strike one at high velocity and really with a fastball that explodes at the top of the zone and then being able to to not allow a hitter to to determine which of the two pitches is coming is pretty phenomenal. That bag of tricks. I, I just I, I look forward to seeing him really get a, a grip on that slider because it's a special pitch. By now, everybody knows the unfortunate news with Kyle Seeger. Ligament uh, damage in his finger will has already had surgery, correct, at this correct. point? And will miss, it sounds like, Jerry, at least the month of April. Is that fair? It's going to be more than that. So right now, I guess depending on where we are, today's March 13th, uh, I guess, as we record this. But Kyle, you know, he dove for a play, looked innocent enough. He rolled his hand. He had to have a surgery to repair the tendon that runs across the top of the hand. It's it it went well. The, he's going to miss eight to ten weeks, so he won't pick up a, a bat for for at least eight weeks. And you know, while we could optimistically say ten weeks, awfully hard to go eight weeks without picking up a bat, swinging and hitting against major league quality pitching, and then snap your fingers in two weeks and be ready to go. So we think it's going to be a, you know it's it's going to be a, a notable absence. He's going to be out for quite some time, and. You know, fortunately, we have a, a number of guys in camp like Dylan Moore, like Ryan Healy, who have experience at third base, and, and we're going to give them an opportunity to run with it. It is amazing. Seager has started six consecutive opening days with third base. It's the longest streak at that position in franchise history. He's never been on the disabled list. He goes into this season. He's tied with Harold Reynolds for the seventh most games played in franchise history. And I was kind of doing some easy math if he plays, and I don't know, now that I rate it in weeks, maybe these numbers don't wash quite as well. But if let's say he plays 100 games this year. Is that a possibility? Maybe more. I like, would say it's a possibility. Okay. If he plays 100 games this year, Jerry, and if he has the next two years of the health that we've known he always has, let's say 150 games each of the next two years, and he'll finish his Mariners career with the fourth most games played in club history. And we're talking Edgar... Ichiro and Junior are the only guys with more. I mean, it's a remarkable run of durability that he's had. His, and Kyle's and I often reference players like he's he's a beetle, you know? <laughs> They're, when the world ends, they just keep on trucking. Right. 
Kyle has that kind of grind to him. It's it's how he goes about his business. He's he's just generally grinds and and you will look up. There's he's the kind of player, and you thought this when you saw him at the University of North Carolina. You thought this when you saw him first show up in the big leagues, and you even think it now, these many years later, when he's probably accrued something in the neighborhood of thirty wins above replacement or thereabouts in his career. Kyle is the player who you're going to look back on his career and say, wow, that was a lot better than I thought. And there's, and I mean that in the most complimentary of ways. It's a, it's, he's not the guy that stands out as the toolsiest. He's not the fastest runner. It's not the gaudiest power. But you look up and there's a steadiness to what he does. And you say, wow, once again, Kyle Seeger goes out and does his 25 homer, you know, 95 driven in. 260 season and adds in the the good defense and it turns into a something between three and five win player on a war scale and he just kind of does it year after year and that's what made last year such a you know a departure it was it was unusual to watch you never saw him quite get on track and just when you thought you had that big day and you know it clicked for him one day in tampa and he and he's uh, swinging it around here we go the next day never quite happened for him and you know, he came into camp in terrific shape I feel badly for him that that uh, you know this happened because it did seem very innocent at the time but we're gonna miss him he's uh and not just the 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 offense that he brings which is obvious but you know Kyle's far and away our, our best defensive third baseman and you know and I think one of the better third basemen in the league when he's healthy so you know, it's a it's a big loss for us, and the, again, playing the long game here. Kyle's thirty one. We we just want to make sure that when he's back out on the field, he's he's a hundred percent. Putting Kyle Seager in perspective, I said, to your point, people do forget, don't realize where he fits into the pantheon of Mariners position players. And just to give this some almost surreal perspective, there are four position players who have a higher FanGraphs score than Kyle Seager. And when you think about the position players that have pay, played for the Mariners just even in the last twenty five years. It's pretty ridiculous. The only people who have a higher fangraphs war than Kyle Seeger, position players in the Mariners organization, Ken Griffey Jr., Edgar Martinez, Ichiro, Alice Rodriguez. It's ridiculous. I mean, that's those are Hall of Fame level talents. And the guy right after that is Kyle Seeger, and then he's followed by Alvin da- or he's followed by Jay Buhner and then Alvin Davis. So it's it's pretty remarkable to look up and see him next to those names. Maestro. That that was fantastic. I was going to do an impromptu yeah. stump JD, but I was like, oh, we'll, we'll we'll let that simmer. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's it. And it is. He's, he's kind of been like Alvin Davis, the, just the, the steady move it across the field presence that makes lineups go that you, you don't truly appreciate as much in their time as you do once they're gone. And after that player retires and moves on, and you realize, wow, it was a, it, he had a really good career here. I look back now at Alvin Davis's career with the Mariners and think that's a fabulous career. Alvin is, of course, overshadowed by how nice of a guy he is. You're right. Fair. Maybe You're the right. nicest person in baseball. It's unbelievable. Hey, sometimes these problems uh, of position logs sort themselves out, and it seems like in some ways that has certainly done this, unfortunately, because of the senior injury. Healy to third, Daniel Vogelback out of options, having, again, a really great productive spring. I mean, in a lot of ways, this spring works out perfectly for Daniel. He'll be on your opening day roster. You made that announcement a number of days ago. What have you made of his second really strong appearance in the Cactus League, dating back to last year, that is? Confirms the reasons why we like Daniel so much. You know, it's a Vogie can hit. 
and and he's always hit he's done it wherever he's been and he came into spring i i think down close to 20 pounds he clearly worked very hard through the offseason to create i guess more flexibility in his defensive game because he knew that's how he was going to make this team and like he i don't i have not seen vogie make a defensive miscue in this camp which is that's that's notable. He's made so much progress defensively. Uh, he's swinging the bat again like he did a year ago, and frankly, like he's done since he's been in a Mariners uniform, although most of that time has come in Tacoma. And now that he's out of options, we never considered the option of coming into spring training and not keeping Vogie on this club because we're committed to finding out what he can be. He's, he's a young guy. He's never had the opportunity to get over the hump. And if we are playing the long game, which is what we're doing right now, it would be foolish of us not to give Vogie the opportunity to be a part of that because he, is, he has power, he has patience, and his, his understanding of who he is as a hitter. Uh, and I said this to a player earlier this week when we were doing our, or I guess last week now, when we were doing our, our send downs, that very rarely do you run across players who are great self-evaluators or who truly understand themselves – Bogey understands himself. He knows who he is and what he's about. Oddly, another player in our camp and does not have a day of major league service. And I think his understanding of who he is as a baseball player, as a pitcher, is Eric Swanson. There's these guys know who they are and what they're about, and they're confident in what they do, and they stick to the A game because they know the A game works. And I'm really excited for what Bogey does in 2019 and hopefully beyond. And I'm very excited to see what. Eric Swanson does with that, though he'll be starting the season in Tacoma. So you are talking about that skill set to know who you are like it's this really elusive thing. It really is. Why is it so hard for a player to know what kind of player they are? And I say this having, you know, walked a day in the shoes. We're all delusional. (laughs) (laughs) But it, it, it it takes really an immense amount of confidence to, to go out and do what these guys do against the top 1% of the players in the world. And in doing so, you have to feel like you're infallible, like there is no, no one can do it better than you. And, and I think I've said this before, like I, I'd be, I was a, as average as it gets. And I would stand out on the mound and when the, when, the, when the manager came to take the ball away from me, the whole time he's walking from the dugout, I'm thinking, are you crazy, man? Why are you doing this? You know, and I'm looking out into the bullpen and my my dearly beloved teammates are sitting down there, and I'm thinking, you're not bringing him in, are you? It's, and and I think 99% of the players that play feel that way. And you know, it's a and whatever I think I about my best breaking ball or my best fastball or if I'm you know my swing is it, there's I might tinker, but I always think that what I do is as good as it gets. Otherwise, I, I, don't, I don't have the ability to compete at this level. And so what's remarkable is when you're able to maintain a real perspective of who you are and what you do or how you do it and not lose that, that confidence that is required. And I say that joking now, 20 years after I retired, but, the, but I, you really have to have that kind of mentality to go out and be able to play against the Griffies and the Edgars and the Alex Rodriguez and and win the game because it's uh, you're not going to beat them by out-talenting them. You, you have to beat them by, by going out and believing that you can. Speaking of confidence, I, I feel very strongly about you in today's Stump, J.D. Really? I really do. Oh, this pleases me. 
Because I feel like there's some there's a vendetta building under the hood. <laughs> oh, a... Since day one, Jerry. <laughs> no, this is. I I feel good. This is um, this is different, but I like it. Okay, let's go back to last year. Last year only, 2018. Okay. We're going to talk, Jerry, about the ability to put the ball in play without striking out. Okay. Okay. Last year, Jerry, there were three players in Major League Baseball who totaled more balls put in play than swings and misses plus foul balls combined. I'm going to say it again. This seems very straightforward. Put more balls in play than swings and misses and foul balls combined. Bingo. Three players. So I listen well. Three players. First guess, Joey Votto. No. That's a great guess. And some kind of entertaining at bat, I will say. There's he not only is an awesome offensive player, but is entertaining to watch. Uh, more balls in play. Think of who. Well, you tell me when you want a lifeline. I don't want to rob you of greatness. The foul balls are. are That's so hard, isn't it? Yeah, it's so hard. So I am. Ah, I'm stumped. I okay. could sit here for half an hour and. All right. Well, look, you have of, done it. Think, thank you. You have done the very so, possible so and stumped JD. Think about who was the hardest players to strike out last year. Hardest players to strike out. Actually, t- more often than not, the hardest players to strike out are the guys who have the the, the greatest propensity for swinging early in the count. Uh, could one of them be D. Gordon? No. Ah, there's one of them is retired. One of them is now retired. One of them is retired. One of them is retired. The other played last Victor year. Victor Martinez? No, great guess, though. That's a great, that's a really good guess. All my great guesses are getting me nothing. Bubkis. Okay, so of the three players, one is retired. One played last year in our division and remains in our division. Okay. The other has joined the Mariners division this offseason. Has he joined? This is so oh, oh, Michael Michael Brantley. Yes, yes, Michael Brantley, <laughs> who's awesome. He is awesome at, at, at the contact game. He does a great job. Uh, one was in the division. Balls in play, swings and misses, foul balls combined. Should I just throw Mike Trout out there? Mike That's does great. miss. That's, he, he does miss. Yeah, no, it's not him. But he plays on Mike Angelton Simmons. Yes, Angelton Simmons, yes. hardest guy to strike out last year, yes. or maybe the second hardest. Whatever. Who's counting? And the third guy is now retired. Yeah. So he played last year. He has since retired. I don't know. Former number one overall draft pick. And retired last year? Yeah. Or no, he would have been the second. Was he the second? No, he was number one. One one. One one. Right? I'm pretty sure he's one one. Yeah, because the guy after him was Mark Pryor, right? Joe Maurer. Yeah. Yes. I did not know that. What an awesome question. Well, thank yeah. you, Jerry. Thank you. Can we cut yeah. that? Can we have that? Can we make some open for this segment and put we, that in We there? can make It'll that your like Perry Hill t-shirt. Yeah. yeah, I'll give it to Gary. He'll, he'll put it together. It'll be great. But then we still got to include, give him your whites and we'll clean them up instead of... <laughs> <laughs> uh, they, uh, wash the dirties is yeah. what it was. Thank you. Get it right, O'Keefe. Get it right. Okay, that was a... F- I feel... I think... I almost want to retire from Stump JD after that one. But you know what? I think I can do even better. I choose not to play. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Listener questions, Jerry. How about Timothy in Bellevue? I mean, now he's not, I don't necessarily, I don't know if he's necessarily referring to the Atlantic League. 
But as many people have probably heard by now, there's a partnership, Major League Baseball, the Atlantic League. They're doing all kinds of crazy stuff. What do you think about some of the new rules Major League Baseball uh, may may want to enforce? Pitch clock, uh, lower the mound, etc. The Atlantic League, for those who haven't heard, they're moving the mound back two feet. The bases are bigger by three inches. Robo-umps, just to name a few. I think the some of these intrigue me more than others. The the bases being bigger fascinates me. There's and it seems like such a small thing to to create three more inches of of a bag, and you know I will throw credit where credits due. Theo Epstein came up with this, and and if you if you apply not simple math but advanced math, and kind of just the bigger bags will create so much more or potential to have the potential of creating so much more offense uh, more balls will be will be fair uh, it's it's amazing what if That's you think about the 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 little things that will happen with a with the bag the bag is a little bit closer to the hitter the bag is a little bit you know uh closer to the dugout there's it creates uh, a different dynamic it's it's the weirdest thing the- see i thought that the idea behind that was I never even thought of that. I thought it was more for injury prevention. First base gets crowded. Nope. This is no. It was uh, the the initial idea was to try to find subtle ways to to open up offense a little bit. And you know this was this was what I thought was a really cool idea. Uh, some of them I think are are I'm gonna watch with interest. The robo umps. How can you not be interested? Right. I don't know if in the end it's going to be the way to go, but I'm wildly interested. I'm probably more of a skeptic in the moving the mound back, uh, that but lowering the mound. Major League Baseball. We've been doing this for decades. You know, raise the mound, lower the mound. There's. I mean, I remember pitching on at Veterans Stadium in Philadelphia in the '90s. And you needed a mountain climbing kit to get to the top of the mound, and and then you'd you'd leave Philadelphia and you'd go to Chicago to pitch at Wrigley Field, and you, you need like a, a a blanket and some tanning lotion because it's a beach, and there was I mean a, like a baby hump, it was nothing. So there, there's to have something that's standard and and using the, the I guess the the height of the mound to create different angles. It's it's unique, and I, I think test driving it in the Atlantic League or in similar leagues is the thing to do because you get to vet it before you put it in play as because we don't want to be erratic in the way you change the way the game is chronicled. You know, th- those subtle little changes will will change records that are considered hallowed, and, and, uh, and we don't want to do that without knowing more about what the result will be. I'll tell you the one that I failed to mention – when I was listing those off that I would love to see happen. It could happen right now. I would be fine with it and it wouldn't affect a single record or course of history. 86 all mound visits, unless you're making a pitching change or somebody's injured. How about yell at them? I mean, there's never, when is there a guy who steps out of the batter's box and says, Hey, 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 come on, come on over here. Come here. Come here. Little help. I need, <laughs> Hey, I just need, what are you thinking here? What should I do? No, never happens. Uh, there would be no argument for all the things that you just stated, right? It, now there's more offense. Well, maybe there would be if he's having a hard time. But uh, I would, I'm very interested to see how that goes. But one of the things they're doing is the, it's the three batter minimum. Uh, right. Is to, is to ensure that there are fewer pitching By the way, changes. I noticed that as a former big league pitcher, you did not like my idea of not having any mound visits. Well, I, I won't say I don't like it. Uh, 
but I don't like it. <laughs> you know, I, it, it, and and part of it is that, that like in-game communication, it, it does mean something. And the the two people on the field that kind of have to know what the other one is doing are the pitcher and the catcher. So hey, well, hey, hey yo, <laughs> I, I think the the limiting visits from the dugout, I'm wildly in favor of. Okay. Uh, I, I will say this. I wasn't a big fan of being visited on the mound from the dugout when I was pitching, but I was a, a fan of seeing the catcher come running out and, and just generally chat for a while. So I, I think it opening the channels for communication at the mound in-game among the players is a good thing. Uh, I'm all for the limiting the, the visits from the dugout. And I think last year what we found out or these past two years with restrictions on the number of visits to the mound – what we found out is we don't really go out there that much to begin with. It's it's a couple of times a game. The one I am wildly in favor of that is not gaining a lot of traction with with some of the players, but to me is it makes the game much more uh, enjoyable to watch is the, is the pitch clock. Count me in on the pitch clock. I love the pitch it, clock. Yeah, it's it's huge. awesome. It keeps the game rolling. You know, you don't even notice. You don't notice at all. It just keeps the pace moving. You will notice well, when we have Gearin's pitching. Well, we, <laughs> but we, haven't, noticed, that, we notice. haven't noticed because nothing's happened because of it. I mean, well, the, I watched an it, AFL game, and there were repercussions for that. And no, there was never any moment where somebody was like, oh, that's a ball because you're at whatever many pitches. I, I love it. I love it. And there is, we'll, whether it's a 20-second pitch clock, we've experimented with it as low as 12 seconds. And, you know, what we do with our guys at the minor league levels, they get, they get to, to big league camp or they make their major league debuts, and these guys all work at lightning speed because that's what they're used to. And, you know, hopefully we're moving toward a generation of player that's just that's the way they're cultured and that's the way they perform. But I like so many of the new rule implementations or the things that we're going to experiment with. You know, it's good. Change is good. And, you know, make the game more interesting, more exciting and, you know, and, and hopefully more appealing to fans. Well, Jerry, I know you're about to shove off to Tokyo, uh, which, I, by the way, I think it's incredible that Griffey and Ricky Henderson will be in Tokyo at the same time. I, I, I mean, watch out, Tokyo, right? You could argue two of the ten greatest players of this half century, and I don't think you'd get much. Ricky never makes that list. Have we had this talk before? There's how how is Ricky it. Henderson not one of the top ten players of all time? There's nobody ever been like him. He did everything, including entertain. Oh, I'm that sure. is absolutely yes. on the checklist. Epic entertainment for Ricky. Well, uh, this has been fun, Jerry. I'm excited for when we talk next in Seattle. Uh, I'm sure we'll be able to line something up uh, early in the season as uh, Mariners get things kicked off against the Red Sox. Remember, Mariners Fan Fest, March 23rd and 24th at T-Mobile Park, as soon as the club gets back from Japan. Tickets 10 bucks, while kids 14 and under are free. Opening weekend, uh, just following the weekend, it starts with uh, opening day, March 28th, and then the start of the four-game series against the defending World Series champion, Red Sox. Hopefully the jet lag will have uh, washed off by then, Jerry. And we uh, we look forward to doing this again in Seattle. After after we get to, to Tokyo and have the best pizza in the world. That's what? It. Now, hold on. True story. The best pizza in the world is in Tokyo? So I'm told. I find this very hard to believe. Who told you? Is it a good source? Uh, David Chang, the, the chef from uh, Momofuku in New York. World famous chef. This was, this was his production. Ugly Delicious. Like, have you? Are, are you aware of Ugly Delicious? Is is like the upscale version of Triple D. Okay. David Chang travels around the world looking for the best f- form of X food, pizza, right? Okay. Whatever it might be. So, 
and it might lead him to Brooklyn, New York, Hartford, Connecticut, Rome, Italy, mm-hmm. and then lo and behold, Tokyo, Japan, and that is where they decided the best pizza was at a, I think it's Siri Ekinen, uh Pizzeria in in Tokyo. I have it on my list. So <laughs> we're we're gonna. All right. Well, we look forward to the full review. Uh, until then, Jerry, as always, thank you. Always. And I destroyed you in some pizza. Ha, ha, ha.